0: Top of the morning to you. I spent a significant part of my career in Catholic hospitals. Whenever I heard that expression, it made me think of a commercial for cornflakes. Top of the morning to you. But the proper response is, and the rest of the day to you, if you're an Irishman. Don't believe that's going to catch on at JBC. But uh, anyway, if you have uh, been to the five days of prayer in the past week, you may have noticed that there is a big black banner in that room called the War Room. The title was shamelessly ripped off of a movie by that same title. And it was kind of hard to miss, big black thing. And it had a passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 10. It said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that passage was a frequent subject of prayer during the five days of prayer. The Apostle Paul used a a variety of different images to depict the Christian life. He used farming, and he used sports, boxing, but most frequently he referred to the Christian life as war, as a soldier, as armor, weapons in battle. He uses the word agonizestai. You have to get the emphasis on the right syllable. Agonizestai is the word we get, agony, and uh, <clears throat> it's often translated as struggle or fight or battle. 1 Timothy 6 Agonizestai, the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called. In Colossians 4, Agonizestai, together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. No soldier, Second Timothy 2, gets entangled in civil- civilian pursuits, he tells Timothy. Number one in your notes, life is War life is war, have become increasingly convinced that what we do in that little room over there in the um, discipleship center is battle. Much of what we have today in terms of the um, Willamette International Ministry was conceived during the five days of prayer years ago. And I can recall situations where policies or a person we needed to recruit or a problem that we needed to be solved that was addressed during the five days of prayer found its divine resolution during that time. This week we had an experience with Edie Clark, who has a ministry in China, and she um, we were concerned about the coronavirus at the beginning of the week. The, the epidemic was beginning, increasing by 1,000 cases in China every day, and it has since uh, exploded. And so China is reacting by creating um, zones of uh, isolation, and some people are isolated in, in particular rooms, and some people are isolated in communities. And some of our people in Edie's ministry have also been put in sequester, in isolation. And so as we prayed for Edie, we prayed that God would protect our people and uh, protect them from dying from the, from the uh, coronavirus, but also that God would use this experience, as he often does, to create opportunity for ministry. And by Thursday, we received an email through Patty um, that... Um, God had heard our prayers, that people had been sharing the faith both in the quarantine areas and with other people in quarantine, and that God, our people had shared their faith out of the quarantine areas such that about 1,200 people had come to faith in Jesus Christ in China as a consequence of the coronavirus and our people's response. to It was a glorious, glorious thing. So we were, we were giving praise for that. Life is war, a spiritual contest whose prize is the souls and the eternal destinies of people that we care about. The nature of the contest is fought over how man perceives God on this planet. Number two in your notes, according to the Bible, the chief purpose for the existence of all things, for the existence of all things is to glorify God. Is to glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Colossians, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. No one might ask, really? All things, everything to the glory of God? And I can recall a Bible study years ago where the teacher said, And the Bible, all means all, and that's all all means. So when you see all in the Bible, all means all, and that's all it means. So everything that um, happens to the Christian believers, to the glory of God. Now, I've included a fairly lengthy list of passages from Scripture in your notes, and you will be relieved to hear that I don't plan to read every one of those. Um, but there is one in Psalms that, um, or, excuse me, Isaiah, that um, the, that is, I think, as useful as il- illustration. God is having a conversation with himself about the nation of Israel. And Isaiah is reporting it. and recorded it in his book. Oh. And um, God is deciding whether or not he will destroy the nation of Israel for their idolatry. He's basically had it. He's done with. The, he's running out of patience because they persist in their idolatry. And he writes in Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, For my namesake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will refrain for you that I do not cut you off. That I do not cut you off. In other words, I'm going to cut you a break. Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. You're going to feel some heat. For my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? For my own sake, for my own glory, he says. I will not give my glory to another. Now on the other side of this great contest, this great war, we have Satan. Satan's desire, number three in your notes, is to pursue his own glory at the expense of God. He pursues his own glory at the expense of God and common verse that we read on the subject is found again in Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, that is hell, to the lowest pits, to the depths of the pit, Isaiah 14. One of the commentaries I read on this passage suggested that Lucifer had an eye problem, not uncommon with uh, some of us as well. Now to sort of expand upon that, we have another passage in Matthew. Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was tempted by Satan. And there were three temptations, and one of them is found in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. Consider the arrogance of a created being saying to his creator, fall down and worship me. My friends, the great contest of our time, indeed the great contest of all of the history of of the world, is the desire of Satan and his followers to exercise dominion over God, our creator. All conflict, ultimately, is spiritual conflict. The battle in our nation over abortion is a spiritual conflict. The battle in our nation over gender identity is a spiritual conflict. The battle that happens between people, between husband and wife, over control is a spiritual conflict. Indeed, the battle among nations. is a failure of nations to recognize the sovereignty of God in the events of men. It's a spiritual battle. Paul says in Romans 2, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. This is the cause of the war, this conflict between God and Satan. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, writes, this is the ultimate outrage, the ultimate outrage. The glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The wrath of God is not feared, The grace of God is not cherished, the presence of God is not prized, and the person of God is not loved. So what does this contest have to do with missions? In the book of Matthew, chapter 20, Jesus is having a conversation with these disciples, and he's giving them their final instructions to these disciples, and by extension to you and I. And he says, go into all nations Go and therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the final marching orders, but this is not the chief end of missions. Later in Mark 16 we're told, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the Mark passage and the Matthew passage taken together are considered the great commission. But this is not the chief end of missions. Number four, in your notes, know the chief end of missions is to glorify God, like everything else. We do missions because God is not glorified. And the chief end of missions is to glorify God. A day will come when missions will be over. And we will continue to glorify God in heaven. Last week, we received a prayer request from Melissa White. Melissa is a missionary that we support in India. She's at the base of the Himalayan mountains. It's a very uh, tough place to be. It's cold on the mountain and hot in the city where it's blacktop and smog. And she's virtually alone and she deals with a group of people who are hostile to Christian testimony, and the government doesn't want her to stay in the country is trying to hassle her to get her out through her visa. So in in this um, prayer request, she um, was very transparent in expressing her doubts about her work. She recorded a conversation she had with another missionary who was doing Bible translation. And she said, so the missionary asked me, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I take care of goats, and I run a a tourism business in India. Oh, well, then you're not a missionary. Melissa said when she heard that, she was very offended. And she questioned herself, am I really a missionary? She describes a ministry that she started in the city, which is about three miles away from where she lives, and how um, she said it was like starting all over and she um, um, basically is trying to get a new country. It's only three miles away, and I've been living here for the past three years, and I've been stretched way out of my comfort zone and had to depend on God's strength and an extra measure of grace. She says, a few times I felt like quitting, especially after experiencing some pretty intense spiritual warfare attacks. She doesn't specify what those are, but she illustrates missions is war. Melissa's commentary reminded me of the Psalms. And certain, there's a pattern in some of the Psalms where the psalmist will write a lament and talk about some hardship that they're experiencing in life. But it also ends in glory to God. Every time I have prayed about quitting, she says, I have felt clearly from God that this is a place I should be investing my time and my energy right now. I have learned to be faithful in the tasks that God has given to me, and God uses each of our gifts and equips us specifically for the tasks that he has called us to do. In her prose, Melissa illustrates that the chief end of missions is to glorify God. Number five in your notes, Satan's principal strategy in this war is to distract Christians from recognizing that we are at war. To distract Christians from recognizing that we are at war. The great author C.S. Lewis wrote about the agony of the Second World War in the book, The Screwtape Letters. He observed that war will not destroy the faith of real believers. In fact, it will, thanks to God's high, high-handed ways, produce a good deal of seriousness about life and death and about eternity. Comfort, on the other hand, produces distraction. In the time that I've lived on this planet, I've never seen or wit- personally witnessed a global war. The wars we've had in our country in my time here have been largely strategic. Vietnam and, and the... Um, Uh, Gulf Wars and other smaller skirmishes. But my parents lived at a time when the existence of the country was brought into question, World War II. And I can remember hearing stories during uh, my growing up days about victory gardens. And my parents had kept a a, um, um, rationing book and they described metal drives and rubber drives flag-draped coffins, and gold star homes. Everybody knew somebody uh, who died in the war. Everything in life was influenced by that war. That's why there was such a great celebration, finally, when it was over. Number six, our understanding of this spiritual war will influence how we live. Will influence how we live. Would our lives be different if Christian believers today lived each Day with the cognitive reality of the spiritual war that exists all around us? I suspect it would. And I am suggesting in in my discussion today that three possible areas where that might occur. Number A, our understanding of the global spiritual war would influence how we pray, would influence how we pray. Prayer is a communication with God as a link to our commander-in-chief And during the five days of prayer, we would frequently pray that God would give us his mind and his heart to praying for our missionaries. And we pray for uh, resource, and we pray for favor with the government. We pray for what I considered airstrikes in particular focus areas where our cause was in jeopardy. God is our commander-in-chief, and we pray for his will in missions. And when you do that, when that becomes our focus, we become less concerned about our own comforts and praying for our own um, well-being. James makes this observation in his chapter 4, verse 3 of the book. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So one remedy for ineffective prayer is to pray God's heart and mind in this great war. It's not inconsistent for Christians to pray for peace insofar as it advances the cause of this war. The Christian prayer warrior is the ultimate pacifist. But the point of praying for peace is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes... I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, so that we can be comfortable? Not necessarily. This is good, he says, and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray for peace to advance the gospel. And finally, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter six, in his famous passage about the uniform of the warrior. In Ephesians 6:17 and 18, he makes a blend between the dual weaponry of the sword, which is the word of God and prayer. He says, "Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit, on all occasions." With all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all of God's people. The caution that Paul gives us is to wield the sword with boldness and with courage, but saturated in prayer. The second observation that we as believers um, would do to enhance our understanding that we are in spiritual war, is that it would influence how we spend our money. It would influence how we spend our money. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records a conversation between Jesus and a wealthy young person, rich young ruler he's called in other passages. And in, in verse 23, he says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't believe that the Scripture uh, judges wealth. We read in the Psalms and the Proverbs that wealth is a blessing from God. The issue is not its existence. The issue is its priority. You cannot serve God and money. And there are lots of examples in the scriptures where people were tripped up by their mixing of that priority. There's um, Achan in the Battle of Jericho when he took a couple of the clothes and hid them and ultimately lost his life and that of his family. There was um, Gehazi who was the servant of Elisha when the, in the story of the healing of Naaman the Syrian where he accepted payment for an Elisha's services and ended up wearing Naaman's leprosy. There's uh, (coughs) Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts and the rich young ruler in this passage. Wealth is a blessing from God and how we use it will be different if we are conscious and aware of the great struggle that exists on the planet. Well number C it would influence how we spend our time. During the five days of prayer, we had a phone call with a a couple of missionaries. We support Neil and Sherry Sperling. Sherry, well, they attended JBC years ago. They went to Ecuador to serve as missionaries, two missionaries in support of missions. And uh, Neil has cancer. He's coming home for surgery and treatment. And so we called them and asked them, uh, you know, how they were doing and how we could pray for them. And, as you might expect, you know they prayed for god 's healing, as Neil deals with this cancer. But the other thing that was curious to me is they wanted prayer for their next steps. I mean, after we get this whole cancer thing out of the way, we want to to have an understanding and appreciation for the next steps God has in our lives they 're contemplating working with sex trade uh, girls in Portland or going to um, another country to do the kind of work they were doing in Ecuador. And it was, it was a um, testimony to me about the priority of the use of their time. I think there's an example here, particularly uh, those of us who are baby boomers as we face retirement, and we have um, discretionary time. How do we use that time or any other time in the context of a great war that we are engaged in. Well, these are just a few examples. You could no doubt think of others. The acknowledgement and the recognition that we are at war would influence how we react to achievement, how we react to position, how we react to suffering or possessions. All those things in life would influence our awareness Um, if, if we were aware that we were involved in a war. Number seven in your notes, active engagement in this war requires our passion and our energy and our joy. As Christians, we have received in the book of history written in advance. Our side wins in the end. Jesus wins in the end, and we do as his disciples and we get to participate in that victory. So the conclusion is not in question, but the process is. The battle is not yet won. There is much work to be done and struggle and suffering to be endured. There's also fellowship and celebration and joy, all the stuff of which life is made. It's how we engage the war that matters. It has consequences for how we and others that we care about will spend eternity. King David, who was no stranger to war or to suffering, observed in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. One of the strongest drives that human beings have is the the need to be Significant to matter. That what we do has consequence. David writes in Psalm 37. um, Take delight in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. He will help you be significant. Psalm 96.3. Proclaiming the glory of God and teaching his word is at the heart of missions. David writes, declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. And finally, in your notes number eight, winning this war is a team effort. Winning this war is a team effort. In the preamble to our conversation that, in our Constitution, there's an interesting little phrase about the duty of government. It is the duty of government to promote and to provide the common defense promote the general welfare, and to provide the common defense. It's been a subject of historians for years. And there are certain things that happen in people in our society that particularly that provide the common defense, where that activity comes into specific and clear uh, clear focus. So, for example, when a policeman enters into a dark alley to pursue a criminal, and puts his own life in jeopardy. That is an exquisite expression of providing the common defense. Or when a fireman goes into a building, climbs up the stairs in a burning building to rescue somebody, that is an exquisite expression of providing the common defense. Or a soldier in a nice, cozy, warm foxhole with the bullets flying overhead. And the order is given to charge. He gets up out of that foxhole and advances against the enemy. That is the expression of providing the common defense. That is when it really matters. One of my favorite authors uh, is a guy named um, Stephen Ambrose. And he wrote a couple of books in the 90s on one of on World War II, and one of them was called D-Day, and the other was called Citizen Soldier. And to do research for these books, he interviewed veterans of D-Day, about 500 veterans. And he described that situation about that that most the crucible of providing the common defense when it comes to uh, the preparation, and you're in this foxhole, and the bullets are flying, and the command is given to advance, to get out of that foxhole. He asked him, why? What motivated you to do that? He suggested three possibilities. He said it may be patriotism, love of country, and love of the flag, and the desire to see our side prevail. Or it could be the desire to go home, be home home with family, and the recognition that all roads to home led through Berlin. Or it could have been training. Uh, We had a very intense uh, combat training and boot camp, and it may be that the training was what motivated our soldiers to get out of that foxhole. Well, the response to the question was nearly unanimous in these 500 veterans. And they said, I love my country. I fly the flag on every patriotic holiday, but that's not what got me out of that foxhole. They said there was nothing worth, nothing uh, better that I wanted to do than to get home and be with my family. But that's not what got me out of that foxhole. They said, we had the best training in the world. We were the best trained army in the field and, and probably in all of history, but that's not what got me out of that foxhole. What got me out of that foxhole was the recognition that in the next foxhole and the one after that and the one after that were my friends that I had been through hell with. And when the command was given to charge, they were depending on me not to mess it up. Expressed in more colorful, soldierly language, no doubt. And I was not going to let them down. And that's what got me out of that foxhole. Next week, you and I have the opportunity to support our missionary friends on the front lines at the point of the spear. And the mission's offering, our goal is $120,000, supporting our missionaries all over the world. We've been praying for them, often intensely, for the past week. We will continue to pray for them every Thursday night, over in the Discipleship Center. You're welcome to join us, 7 o'clock on Thursday evenings over in, in the first floor of the Discipleship Center. And next week we will be taking an offering that will make up the entire missions budget for the year. You have an opportunity to participate in this great conflict in this manner by supporting our missionaries financially they are depending on us and we don't want to let them down so i encourage you to prayerfully consider your participation in this great cause a grateful lord for tonight today for the privilege that we have to be involved in missions and we thank you for allowing us to be a part And the work that you have planned and designed to occur on this planet. We pray that each of us would carefully examine our own contribution to this great contest. And that you would be honored in our response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.